Do you think you may have a problem with your alcohol consumption or drug use? Are you thinking about quitting and want to know what all the sober hype is about? Whatever the reason, I'm so grateful you're here with me today. My name is Sarah, and I am the creator and host of Sober Gratitudes. I once was an active alcoholic, and after decades of failed attempts to control my drinking, I finally reached out for help. Letting others help me is why I'm here today, living a life I never thought possible. The suffering of my past was the catalyst I needed to find recovery and be receptive to healing. I created this podcast out of the desire to recover out loud and, with the help of my guests, show you how a better life is possible after addiction. Whether you have been here before or you are a first-time listener, I would be so grateful if you would take a moment to write a review on Apple Podcasts so that it can reach more people who may be struggling. Together, we can help those in need. You can also reach me at sobergratitudes at gmail.com with any questions or comments. Thank you again for dropping in today, and welcome to Sober Gratitudes. Hi, everyone. I'm so glad you're here. I'm really excited today because we have a guest who um, is pretty well known on Instagram. His name is Mike Modisette from Faithfully Sober. And we get right into things. I didn't know him at all. I didn't know his story. So I, I really just wanted to get right into things. And he's got a compelling story. So get ready to hear about how bad it got and how he changed. So without further ado, welcome, Mike. Well, thanks for having me, Sarah. It's a pleasure. How bad did it get for you? Well, um, my wife and I signed divorce papers in our kitchen, if that tells you anything. Okay. It got that bad. Um, you know, we had moved to Philadelphia for a new job opportunity for me. And, um, you know, after a geographical change didn't fix anything, um, you know, I ended up quitting that job to attend a rehab. It was a faith-based rehab in New Jersey, actually. And, um, you know, I pridefully walked away from that after 30 or so days out of a four-month uh, period said it wasn't for me, came home, um, you know, she wasn't all that happy. I ended up relapsing very quickly uh, after that. And um, she basically decided that I had chosen alcohol over her. I wasn't willing to stick out a rehabilitation program. So she uh, printed out all the paperwork, brought it home one day. I was already drunk when she got home. And uh, we signed divorce papers. She had uh, my best friend from church come over and help move all her belongings out of our house. And that was my rock bottom. Um, you know, I didn't have a job. I no longer had health insurance. I was losing my health rapidly. Uh, and literally, I was wasting away, losing a ton of weight. I was surviving off the same thing that was killing me. Um, 
just you know going from one binge to the next, um, eating very little, you know, throwing up stomach acid every morning. I mean, it, it was a miserable excuse uh, of existence. I had pushed away all of my friends and family that cared about me, anyone that tried to get close to me, I um, alienated myself from. So it basically, basically came down to uh, one morning, uh, my wife and I were supposed to meet at Bank of America to sign some financial documents um, to remove her from my account, to move some money around, and uh, for that to kind of basically start solidifying the split. And that morning I basically surrendered and said, okay, I'll go to another rehab. And I did, I ended up at a rehab in Northeast Philadelphia, um, just outside of Kensington. I don't know if you're familiar with that area, but it is, it's one of the roughest, uh, you know, open air drug markets in the entire country. And, you know, my problem wasn't drugs, but um, it was very reminiscent of what Skid Row in California would look like. Anyway, because I didn't have health insurance since I quit my job, I was at the mercy of some nonprofit programs in Pennsylvania. And I ended up at a rehab that was full of um, recently released prisoners that were there on a time reduction program. I'm talking about um, felons, convicted murderers, almost everybody there had murdered somebody. And here I am, a guy that just left a $100,000 job, that just left a big house on the Delaware River, that is potentially losing a wife that loves him dearly. All that because I couldn't swallow my pride, be humble, and get the help I really needed. Um, you know, I was thrown in there with the wolves and expected to complete a 30-day program, you know, with eyes in the back of my head, hoping someone's not going to come take me out just because I look at them wrong. But all that being said, I'm very glad I ended up at a rehab like this because it really forced me to do the work. I mean, day one, I'm, I'm starting uh, this Naked Mind from Amy Grace, which and uh, I'm in no way um, financially compensated for saying this, but that book is largely responsible for saving my life. It literally rewired how my subconscious mind looks at alcohol, uh, perceives alcohol. And um, I can't stress enough how important it is to add to your recovery cocktail as uh, some quit lit, if you will, um, if you haven't read it already. Um, but yeah, so this rehab, it's like prison. I'm scared to death, but I know that if I quit this one, no excuse is going to uh, be good enough for my wife. So I had to want to do this for me. Um, had this been one of these fancy getaways in Malibu or Miami, which they have their merits, but had it been more along the lines of like this luxurious vacation rehab, I don't know if I would have uh, taken away the same experience and progress as I would have here, because with this rehab being no frills, um, it caused it forced me to do the work. 
I was in literature every day. I was in, um, I was in counseling sessions every day. Um, you know, here is where I was actually able to find a root cause of what was causing me to drink. I had a counselor, you know, the first day I was there asked me, Mike, what brought you here? And I said, alcohol. And she said, no, you know, what, why are you here? And I said, well, I'm an alcoholic. And then she said, no, why are you here? And basically what she was doing is she was going through this uh, counseling technique called the five whys, which is used to peel back the layers to eventually allow you to um, arrive at the root cause of your problem. So after you know, a handful of sessions, you know, I, I basically arrived to the conclusion that I had a lot of unprocessed emotional um, and social traumas that I had acquired as a child. You know, I came from a great family. You know, they, they gave me every opportunity to succeed as far as, you know, sports. Um, I was even in choir. I did Boy Scouts. I did all these things, all of like the worldly um, opportunities that a, a mom and dad could give their children, they gave to us. But they kind of ended at that. Um, you know, my, my dad is a very prideful um, and kind of angry person at times. You know, there, there was no there was no room for ever allowing, you know, the child to have their opinion be heard, um, you know, to ever be right about anything. You know, we weren't ever worthy of being apologized to. And when we went to our, when I went to my mom, you know, for refuge in these, you know, situations, I was always met with an excuse. So, you know, over time as a child, you know, when that spans, you know, you know over a decade and a half or so, you know, it starts to basically, you know, make you feel like your opinions don't matter. You're not worthy of being heard. All of your emotions and feelings have been dismissed over time to where, you know, as you are getting older and, you know, meeting new people, you know, you're already counting yourself out that you're going to be struck down. You're not going to be supported or defended because your opinion has never carried any weight. Uh, and that was really damaging to my self-esteem tremendously. Um, you know, I excelled in sports. Um, you know, I got a college scholarship for baseball. You know, I had no problem, you know, in the female department. You know, I was very successful as far as like outwardly, worldly appearances would suggest. But man, inside I was broken. And because I couldn't ever, you know, go to my parents to really talk about what was on my heart. Um, since my dad was so hardened to that idea, um, I, I was kind of left with this void in my heart that needed to be filled. I needed something to, to numb that pain, something that gave me the confidence to feel like when I went out, I would be received well, like my voice would be heard, um, like I was worthy of having an opinion that differed from others and that I wouldn't get shot down. Um, so eventually, you know, all of this, you know, emotional trauma, if you will, kind of manifested into some depression. I was on antidepressants for a long time, seeing psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors. Um, and while that helped, it, we never really addressed the problem at home. And the problem at home always told me to go talk to others about it. So, 
you know, it was kind of this, this art of deflection, you know, within the home where the root cause was never really addressed. So after all this time, after going through an addiction that almost killed me, after going to rehab and then going through a recovery program, um, I was finally able to arrive at some peace in knowing where a lot of the root cause came from. And again, I can't blame all of that on, you know, emotional traumas that happened in the home. You know, I also believe that I, I do have this genetic predisposition to love alcohol the second it enters my body. So you couple that with the mental health issues that, you know, derived from some, some home issues, and you've got a, a perfect storm, basically. So in a nutshell, you know, that's how bad it got. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm at a point now where I'm approaching a year sober. And, uh, man, my, my life looks so different. Uh, my wife and I, we reconciled. We, we have the healthiest marriage we've ever had. Uh, we just celebrated our three-year anniversary. Um, and we've got a baby boy on the way. Uh, we just bought a new house, our first house. I got an even better job in the aerospace industry back in my home state of Texas. All of these things were just a fantasy in my mind over 10 months ago. Um, I've also been able to reconcile with her family to a point where I consider them, you know, my, my, my new family. You know, I call her dad, dad. I call her mom, mom. Uh, because they treat me with love and compassion like you would hope your family of origin would treat you no matter what. I, I unfortunately have discovered that the love that I thought I had for my family of origin was very conditional, meaning that if I was not willing to comply and submit and still be less than, even as a 36-year-old man, that I was no longer uh, worth reconciling with. And that is a damn shame. You know, not even, not even, not even the threat of, you know, not having a relationship with our son that's going to be born in January swayed their mind. Uh, I, I still struggle with this significantly every day that I could have a set of parents, even a brother and sister, that are so damn stubborn and set in their ways. They would rather not even have a conversation for fear that it might uh, it might cause the foundation of pride and resentment they've created towards me to crumble when they actually hear the truth. Um, you know, oftentimes they've said that, you know, the black sheep of the family is the only one willing to tell the truth. Well, here I am. I'm not trying to condemn, you know, my parents for how they raised me. They raised me the best way that they could. But at a point in time, you know, if, if it's not enough to maintain a relationship after someone's come out of addiction and they're in a new season of life and growth and recovery. You know, if, if wanting to sit down with your parents to talk about some hurts that, you know, serve as catalysts for your mental health issues and your addiction, if that's not received well and they just want to push you away to avoid having to force them to think about some of the behaviors that they exhibited towards you that could have very well played a role in your mental health issues. Um, that, that's really hard to take 
But you know what? I didn't drink over it because I'm a healthier version of myself now. Um, you know, to, to be dismissed and abandoned by your family, it's one of the better excuses an alcoholic could have to relapse, but I didn't. Um, since I have chosen life, I also get to choose who I allow to be in my life. And just because you're blood doesn't mean you get a free pass. You know, just like I had to come back, you know, on the other side of this, you know, willing to make amends, willing to apologize for behaviors I had exhibited when I was in active addiction, it goes both ways. And just because, you know, my issue might have been uh, the most visible within this family, that doesn't mean that no one else in this family has stuff that they can work on too. Now, if it's easier for you to put all the blame on me because I'm a raging alcoholic, that, that's your choice, but it's not making you any healthier. And it's not, it's not helping the integrity of this family unit that used to be a loving, cohesive unit that is now divided because egos are so strong that people would rather not swallow their pride and be more open-minded to, um, you know, hearing about my feelings and why I feel like I became the way I was and why I feel like certain conversations need to be had now in order to move forward as a family um, in, in the healthiest way possible. Wow. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I completely identify when, you know, go, getting sober, obviously we hear a lot that, you know, it's a, it's a family disease. And um, when I got sober, I, I went on my journey in sobriety and <clears throat> it took me some time to accept the fact that there was going to be some people in my life who didn't quite understand why I stopped. They could, they didn't know because I was a big secret keeper. Like no one knew how much I drank. And, um, and so I, for a while was like, oh, they should understand. They should. And then after a while I realized, you know what, there's nothing I can do except work on myself and change my own attitudes and behaviors. And I can't control them and where they're at in their journey. Um, and it's, it's a relief to be able to kind of let go and just accept it and know that um, the better that I get, and I've found this in the years that I've been sober, that the more um, I kind of let go of my will and <clears throat> that things just get better around me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there, there's a saying, the truth will set you free. And that is very evident um, in recovery. Um, you know, with a lot of men, you know, the idea of really opening up and sharing what's on your heart, talking about your feelings is a foreign concept because that goes against the societal expectation of what a man should be. A man's supposed to be rough and tough and calloused and hard, you know, to talk about these things would show weakness. And since you're supposed to be the leader and the provider of your family, you can't do that. Well, I have news for anyone that thinks that the, the manliest thing you can do is to examine, you know, the, the, the pain on the inside to address it and to work through it so you can grow from it and heal from it. Because when you do that, it prevents you from projecting misplaced and misdirected anger onto your loved ones. And like, 
is that is that the way a, a man is supposed to act? You're supposed to redirect the anger from your closed off heart unto your wife and your children and your friends and family? No, but that's what ends up happening when these you know so-called manly men refuse to you know show some humility and look within and address that pain. And that's that's been the biggest change for me. Um, and you know I, I also no longer you know, try to place my identity in my worldly success. You know, I, I learned that no amount of worldly success, you know, albeit your professional success, your um, relational success, um, financial success, any of it, no amount of that success can replace the void in your heart created when you are spiritually bankrupt. And so for me, that's where I was 10 months ago. I was absolutely spiritually bankrupt. My compass was broken. Everything I was doing was to satisfy my own personal selfish desires, which meant getting that next break. That's what my life had become. I had become such a self-absorbed person that I had complete amnesia of all of the hurt and pain I had caused my wife and friends and family that were trying to be there for me. Um, they, they were trying to show me the kind of unconditional love that you know my higher power, Jesus Christ, has for me that I was ignoring. Because at that point in time, you know, I had made myself God. Basically, when you make yourself God, when you make yourself the CEO of your life, you're basically saying you don't have to answer to anybody else. You're in charge, what you say goes, and whatever anybody else thinks, you know, they're wrong, essentially. Once I got out of rehab, you know, as a way of showing that I was a more humble person, I allowed so many people to sharpen me on a daily basis. Um, I had mentors, I had friends, I had my sponsor, you know, I, I was finally able to accept the idea that when another man offers you advice, it's not because he thinks that he's better than you. It doesn't mean you're less than. It just means he might be more knowledgeable in certain areas. You know, I grew up in a household where if you tried to give someone like my father, for example, advice, you were in the wrong because that meant that you must think you know more than that person. So I, I had to learn that that's not the way that most people communicate. And that's not the way most people internalize being fed wisdom and advice. So just being more humble, allowing, allowing myself to be sharpened by others, allowing God to be God, Mike to be Mike, that, that really helped. And um, you know, as, as long as I don't get those two confused now, where I confuse God with Mike, because God's not going to confuse me with him. As long as I, you know, know my role uh, and allow myself to, you know, essentially surrender to my higher power every day, my life has radically changed. Now, granted, you know, I've been blessed with some, you know, amazing life events in a pretty short amount of time, but I, I can't credit that for things I've done. I can only credit it to my willingness to be humble, to allow 
God to pour into me, to allow, allow others to pour into me, and to allow a program to actually work. And when I say program, I'm, I'm not referring to just AA. Um, I'm, I'm a kind of recovering alcoholic that has what I like to call a recovery cocktail. I've got a little bit of various programs all wrapped into a nice drink that I consume every day. Um, it's a little bit of AA. It's a little bit of my church. It's a little bit of quit literature. It's a little bit of podcasts. It's a little bit of the Instagram recovery community. It's a little bit of working out. It's a little bit of running. It's a little bit of eating healthy. It's a little bit of having very honest, raw communication with my wife and friends and family. It's all these behaviors that I have to try to repeat on a daily basis that keeps me very healthy, very sober, and very willing to, um, you know, share my message with others in, in hopes that my story and my message resonates and that it will help someone suffering in silence to, to see that there is hope. Uh, this is wonderful. I, you know, I, everything you've said um, is just so helpful, I think, especially for the men out there who are struggling either in sobriety or they're in addiction and they're not wanting to kind of give away their power, which, you know, is somewhat misunderstood that statement. Um, like how empowering it can be to let go of your will, you know, let go of control. And, you know, I know in my experience, I was, once I was able to really, you know, get out of God's way, <clears throat> and trust God's will, things are around me just were working out better. Um, people were experiencing me differently and they continue to experience me differently. And that's one thing I think um, I love to talk about because it's not, that that's a part of recovery. I think that's not known and not understood that, you know, when we put the drink down, we're, we're becoming like, these amazing individuals who, who aren't so self-centered anymore. And like, I'm thinking about your wife right now. And if, if, if you could be her voice, like what would she describe you? Like how, how did she experience you before recovery? And that how does she experience you now? So obviously, you know, when I was courting her before we got married, I chose to not tell her that I was a closet raging alcoholic because that typically won't go over very well. So, uh, you know, as we got, you know, married and moved in together and, you know, we're under the same roof, you know, it gets a lot harder to hide that kind of stuff. And basically what she realized was that I was very broken. I was very depressed and there was something that was causing me to want to escape reality. There was something that was making the life I had not enough. There was something that was making me feel like I wasn't enough. And, you know, it, it unfortunately took several rock bottoms uh, for me to finally, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, surrender and um, be willing to swallow my pride, which for most men is so hard to do. Um, you know, admitting that you have that problem. You know, I, I think, I think the societal 
um, interpretation of addiction is starting to change where it's not a moral failing, but there's still enough hesitation to basically come out, if you will, that you're an alcoholic, that you're going to be condemned and shamed, that you know most men would just rather avoid it at all costs, even if it means drinking themselves to death. So, you know, if if you were able to talk to my wife now and ask her, you know, the difference between who I was then, you know, a broken man to a man now, um, you know, I, I'm a healed man. You know, back then I was like this flower pot that fell on the ground and broke into a million pieces. And I'm still that flower pot, but now I've been glued back together. And that glue has actually made me stronger. You know, I still have hurts, I still have bad days, but I'm able to respond to them in a much more um, healthy manner. I will actually tell my wife or tell, you know, friends in church exactly what, you know, I'm feeling, which again, to most men is a foreign concept. But if I'm, if I'm upset about, you know, something to do with my family or, you know, the way that I feel I was treated by a stranger even, um, it's rather, it, it's, it's better to just address it right then and there, explain how you're feeling than to let it bottle up to prevent an explosion later on. Um, you know, my wife sees me speaking with individuals like you. Um, on podcasts, she sees all the messages I get from people all over the world on my inbox, uh, through my Instagram uh, profile, where I'm able, you know, to give back uh, what I have been given. And that's another big change I guess my wife has seen in me is, you know, it's not just me trying to maintain my sobriety now, it's me trying to give it back to others because I almost died. I really did. Sometimes I'm very surprised I'm still here. And I feel like, you know, now that I'm on the other side of this, and again, tomorrow's not given. I still got to do work today. But now that I'm on the, um, now that I'm on the other side of this, I feel like this has given my life more meaning. Um, to, to not just be this amazing husband for my wife, this future amazing father to my child, and an amazing friend, um, but it, it now is giving me purpose to try to share my story as authentically as I can. So hopefully, even if it just impacts one person that, you know, hears my story and resonates with it and can identify with, you know, just me as a person, if, if me getting that back can bring one person out of the dark into a realization that they need to swallow their pride and go to rehab or just go to that first AA meeting, then uh, that, that gives me you know, more satisfaction than you know, a good progress report at work or uh, you know, getting a new personal record in the gym. Uh, I love knowing that uh, God is using me as a vessel to share my story to help give others hope. I do too. I am so happy about that too. And I love the fact that you're so comfortable being vulnerable and I agree. I see it too, that there's such a huge pre presence of women in 
social media, um, even in real life, where women seem to have an easier time being vulnerable with other women and other men and the men to the man to what is it what do you think it is because i have another friend um actually that i was talking to before this podcast he's a part of my sober community he's sober underscore texas his name is forrest ferguson he's one of my dearest friends i've known him for years over over social media and he he talks about how it's it's a little frustrating that he can't like he sees men suffering he he tries to reach out to connect but he doesn't get much of a response it's mostly from the women like what why is that like and how how can we change that like how can we support men in having like intimate relationships well there's no motives you know it's just a man helping another man get sober um, and being vulnerable like what's that about you know I, I still really think that it's fascinating, you know, when you look at the, the numbers, you know, uh, like at, at an AA meeting, for example, I think, I think the numbers of male to female, like the ratio is almost, you know, 70, 30. But then you look at Instagram and the amount of men that engage in the sober and recovery communities, it's almost an inverse relationship, 30, 70. But for the amount of users on Instagram overall, Sorry, I thought, my, I thought I had my phone on silent here. Um, so for the amount of users overall on Instagram, uh, male versus female, it's about 50-50. So yeah, what's going on there? Uh, I, I think that one reason you might see more men in an AA meeting is because that gives them a sense of still having control, but working on it where you can still go to the meeting and say your first name, but still leave the meeting and know that not really anybody else has to know that's your problem, which is fine. That works for a lot of people. But when, you, when you're talking about social media specifically, you know, you're not confined to just that room. Unless you have a private profile, literally anybody can see your profile. And if you're choosing to recover out loud, that means a potential love interest. It could mean extended family. It could mean an employer. And to a lot of people, that's frightening because of the stigma that if you struggle with alcoholism, you are a weak, flawed person. And I said this earlier before we started recording, you know, with social media, you know, a, uh, an Instagram profile, a Facebook profile. I mean, it's, it's just like a profile on Tinder or Match. You're creating an advertisement for what you want the world to think you're like and what your life is like. And so I think because with men, you're still, you know, so ingrained to have this strong, tough exterior, which I think you could probably, you know, a credit a lot of this just back to a few generations with so many men in the war that fought for our country and this idea of a man was you know uh, a man that 
uh, was rough and tough and fought and cussed and you know you name it. That's just I feel like kind of the idea of what a man was in these previous generations. You know, one that you know would come back from war and you know would drink themselves to sleep because they had all this pain and hurt in their hearts and things that they had seen and heard, and then that's projected onto their kids, and then you know it spirals out of control into a new generation of unresolved trauma and more drinking. You know, I, I could go off on a tangent about this, but what I'm, the point I'm getting at is I, I still think because of the way, you know, men are essentially supposed to act as far as um, what it means to be a man, that the idea of exposing yourself on social media in a way that would tell the world, hey, look at me, I struggle with alcohol. There's still that inherent fear that you're telling the world, hey, look, I'm weak. And I mean, I think that's that's it. Most men just aren't willing to admit that they struggle with alcohol because they think that if they admit they struggle with alcohol, that it's some type of moral failing. And it absolutely is not. Yeah, that that makes sense to me. Um but I don't totally understand because I'm not a man. But thank you for for sharing that. Uh, it's a it's a it's a big piece in this you know journey that we're all on. That and the world understanding addiction and and recovery and and how women get sober and how men get sober and just just all that comes with it. And the bottom line is is having a community, having people that you can lean on and support. Um, in addition to, you know, in, in my opinion, having, you know, a higher power that I can really rely on, um, that, that's really such a, that's basically the, as you say, the, the recovery cocktail, (laughs) that the interesting way to describe, um, you know, how you recover, what, what you put into your recovery to keep you sober, um, so yeah, it's a lot more than just putting down the drink, right? Yeah, why, why would you wanna get sober and then not work on yourself? Because that, yeah. honestly, that would seem miserable because then you're just making yourself prone to suffering with no way to escape. Right, exactly. It's true. Yeah, like I didn't get sober to be miserable. And you know, I see a lot of people who are miserable in sobriety and um, that's what I, Hope, I hope to be able to connect with people in doing interviews with people like you and, and my account as well um, and yours, you're doing it, is that work needs to be done. And, and it, it isn't hard. It really isn't that hard to be happy and sober, you know? So um, Mike Modisset. You got it. I'm so psyched that um we have you on the podcast faithfully sober is his handle uh if you want to follow him he has some great content um really he's a real deal and any men out there who's looking for you know a a man who's willing to connect no matter what you know i mike you seem to be one of the i don't know not too many men who are willing to be vulnerable like you are. Um, 
correct me if I'm wrong. Please write in. Tell me if I'm wrong about this. <laughs> I want to hear from more men. I hear a lot from women, but um, not so much the men. So I do really appreciate you reaching out to me. And I think what you're doing in sharing your story is, is tremendous service. And we do so much better when we recover together and out loud as a team, both men and women together with no other motives, but just to help people feel better. So you're doing that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Before we go, tell me again, when is your son due? January 6th. Ah, my youngest son's birthday is January 9th. It's a good month. They say that January babies are real, are very friendly people, just very kind. Well, that's good to know. You know, I, I'm actually a uh, professional scheduler by trade so i'm trying to figure out how i can you know shave some days off this due date to squeeze them in to janet or to december so he can be covered for my insurance this year okay but, uh, i guess that's not up to me no 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 he's gonna come when he wants to yeah well great thank you again so much mike and um good luck to you and i'm so glad we're connected now i consider you a part of my family um, now at this point, um, anyone who comes on my podcast, I just, I love connecting. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. And hope that we can uh, connect again sometime. Absolutely. Well, you know where to find me. All right. <laughs> and you too. Okay. Right. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Thank you to my guest and all of you for listening. I hope what you heard inspires you to look for and recognize the gifts of sobriety. Sober Gratitudes, a podcast dedicated to delivering messages of hope through true stories of recovery. A sober life is possible if you truly want it. Sober Gratitudes is a podcast dedicated to spreading the hope in recovery from addiction. It is an inclusive show that does not promote or represent any recovery program. When my guests and I discuss what keeps us sober, we are referring to our own unique experiences. Our goal is to encourage and give hope to those who are struggling and need support.